If you would, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 12, and we're continuing our series of messages on stewardship and what it means to be a steward. Remember we said uh, for the past several weeks that a steward is simply a manager, one who uh, is a possessor of something that doesn't really belong to him, it belongs to someone else, but he is called to be a manager of these possessions. And so we've, we've been looking over these weeks at being a steward of the gospel, we've been looking at what it means to be a steward of finances and resources, and now we come this week to see what it looks like to be a, a steward of life. This week and next week, the steward of gift, the steward of life. And so uh, the title of this morning's message, if you're taking notes, is The Way of the Steward. The Way of the Steward. Now, through this whole series, we've been challenging us to, to understand everything that we've been given, that everything that we own belongs to God. 100% of our, of our treasures, 100% of our time, 100% of our talents, God has given us the talents, he's given us the resources, he's given us the time, he's given us the abilities, and everything that we have truly belongs to him. But now we come to this idea of time, and in and, and this culture, we, we, we want to maximize our time. It's my time. It's, it's all about me. Uh, the gifts that I can do, I, I want them to serve me. But what I believe the Scripture is teaching us is that when we look at a couple of people in Scripture, we, we will see uh, that the, the, the right placement of our gifts. As I read the Bible, I find that giving is a recurring theme. It's found over and over and over again. In my studies of God's Word, I've learned this about giving, that giving is not something we do, it's something that we are. Giving is not something that we do, giving is something that we are. Now, some people have the gift of giving, and, and they, 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 they want to share. My wife has the gift of giving, and so she's constantly thinking of, of what she can give, what she can give, what she can give. I don't have the gift of giving. In fact, I have the gift of hoarding, and I want to hoard and hoard and hoard and hoard. And, and so God puts us together, and, and I have a wife who wants to give, and I have myself who wants to hold on. But, but even though I'm not a, I don't have the spiritual gift of giving, that doesn't mean that I don't give. We must all give. We must give of our treasures, our talents, our, our time, and we must give uh, out, of, out of what God has so richly blessed us with. So we have here this idea of stewardship and action. As I read God's Word, it, it's, there, there's, there's so much more uh, to life that I believe that we're so uh, missing out on. Please stand in the honor of reading God's Word. John chapter 12, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. When Jesus had raised him from the dead, just as a side note, every time you see Lazarus in the Scripture following uh, his resurrection from the dead, you will always see this tagline, Lazarus, the one who Jesus rose from the dead. That There's a whole sermon in that statement right there because when you meet Jesus, when, when he provides the resurrection in your life, you've been changed. And that's what Lazarus experienced. Lazarus was physically dead, and he made him alive, and he, he, he became changed. His name even changed. He's no longer Lazarus, but he's Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead. And so that's the motto of every Christian, right? I'm Wesley, who Jesus raised from the dead. You're Bob, who Jesus raised from the dead. Mary, who Jesus raised from the dead. 
Whenever you meet Jesus and the resurrection power, it changes you. It, it changes you at your very core. Then he said, verse 2, So they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it. For the day of my burial, for the poor you will always have with you, but you don't always have me. Father, I thank you for this word. Now speak to us from it. We ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, please be seated. There's two points to today's message. And in fact, I, I saw some of you getting a little weary. You know, he's starting to preach and we're still standing. Uh, I'm working on my dissertation, my PhD dissertation. I, I've got 57 more pages to go and I'm done. I'm so excited about that. Don't clap yet. I've still got 57 more pages to go. And it's, 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 a, it's a toiling effort. I, I average a page an hour. So I've got 57 more hours. That's a daunting task. But uh, my, my minimum is 150. So I'm shooting for the minimum. I've been working on this for seven years, and I always try to achieve higher, but when it comes to this, I'm just ready to get done. But as I was studying for my PhD, I, I learned that in the early church, and you know, we always talk about wanting to go back to the early church and be more like the early church. Do you know how they actually preached in the early church? The pastor would sit down in a chair, and the congregation would stand for the whole sermon. I thought, I like that. I like that. that. That's a pretty cool idea. And they would preach for two hours. So don't, don't come at me when I preach for 45 minutes. They preach you preach too long. They used to preach for two hours back then. That's a side note. That's, that's not even a part of the sermon. But Mary's stewardship. Two things about Mary's stewardship here. First of all, we see her possession. It was a sacrifice. The gift that Mary gave to Jesus was costly. We know of its worth because of the reaction that, that uh, the crowd that uh, occurred around her. It says in uh, the verses 4 and 5 that Judas is carried through a hissy fit. I can't believe she poured all of this oil, she poured all of this perfume on your feet nonetheless. Judas is carried, he, he, he led the pack. He, he said she wasted all of this money. A man would work 300 denarii. What, what does that represent? That's a year's salary. A man would work all year for 300 denarii. It's equal to a year's salary. Just, just think about how much you make in, in a, a year's time. And Mary took that amount and she poured it out. Judas said she wasted it, but she took this as a, a, a sacrificial offering. She, she, she caused this. She, she poured this out on his feet. It, it can't be used anymore. She, she spent it, right? It, it can't be used anymore. It, it's gone, but she gave all of it. In Mark's account, Jesus said she's done what she could do. When Judas and the others said, what in the world were you thinking, woman? Jesus said she did what she could do. That is an heiress tense. It literally means that Mary gave everything. 
So from this, this picture of what we see with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and Jesus coming, we know this is a picture of Jesus being anointed six days, it says, before Passover, six days before he is to be crucified and, and before he dies. And so we see this as, as the anointing. He's, he's being anointed for the crucifixion. But this gift from Mary was a sacrifice. Sacrifice. That, that, that means to be made holy, to set apart to God. And when we take something that belongs to us, something that has our name on it, and we offer it to God, it's made sacred and made holy. God, God does not receive those things that are not holy, that are not sacred. So he takes our gifts, he takes our praises, he takes our worship, he takes the money, he takes our time, he takes those things, and, and as we lay them on the altar, they become holy, they become sacred, they become sanctified. Have you ever noticed that anything that's worth doing in life, that's, that's positive, that's good, requires sacrifice? There's nothing easy in life, is there? Nothing, nothing comes easy in life. If you want a strong marriage, you know what it takes? Sacrifice. If you want your children to grow up in the way of the Lord and, and be good citizens, what does it take? A good swift kick in the, the tush sometimes, spare the rod, spoil the child, but it takes sacrifice. If you want to grow in your employment and your business, you want to be successful, it takes sacrifice. Churches flourish when Christians begin to sacrifice when they give their best, and Mary sacrificed. And that's an important aspect of this story. And when we preach this, this message, we, we, we often hone in on that. But there's another element that I want us to see about what she did this day. She sacrificed, yes. And we've talked about sacrifice through this stewardship message. But there's an important notion here I want us to see. I, I want us to see number two, not simply her possession, but I want us to see her position. Because the position that she takes is a, is a, a position of service. It's a, a picture of, of being a servant. We know that her, her sister was serving. There was nothing wrong with Martha serving. Every time we see Martha and Mary and Jesus coming to the house, Martha is always in the kitchen. She's, she's always serving. She's always doing and doing and doing and doing. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we see Mary doing the same thing. You say, well, wait a minute. Mary isn't serving. Mary is on her knees pouring out a year's worth of salary on on Jesus' feet. Notice her posture. She's on her knees. This is a picture of, of, of surrender. This is a, a picture of, of, of service. This, when she wiped, uh, what, what did she use to wipe off his feet? She used her hair. In first century culture, a, a slave would walk around behind his master, and when the master would, would wash his hands, or the master, if he was working, he got wet, the slaves would come and, and offer their hair in, an, in, a, in a notion of servanthood, serving their master. And so we see, why, why would she wipe with her hair? What was the point of wiping with her? The picture is that she is a servant. The picture is that she is down on her face. Uh, Paul calls himself several times a bondservant, a doulos, a slave. As Christians, we are not owners of ourselves. We are slaves to Jesus Christ, right? We are servants to Jesus Christ, and, and we do what He tells us to do. 
We are in His work. We are in His army. We are in His family. And He is the head. And He is the one who leads. He is the one who guides. He is the one who directs. Martha was serving, but so was Mary. Mary was in a place of servanthood. In Luke 10, we see that uh, there, there's several times when we see Mary at, at the feet of Jesus. The first time, there's three times in Scripture. The first time is in Luke 10. We see her at the feet of Jesus for a blessing. She was taking in the words of Jesus. Jesus was teaching, and, and, and she was listening. She was taking in the words. Another time is in John chapter 11. We see Mary at the feet of Jesus because of a burden. She sent word to Jesus, your friend, my brother Lazarus, is about to die. Jesus said, I'll come. But he didn't come right away. He waited. Lazarus died. Jesus entered into Bethany, the city where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Jesus entered the city, and, and we see Mary and Martha running. When they see Jesus, they ran, and Mary hits, the knee, hits her knees at the, at the feet of Jesus, and she has a burden. Oh, Jesus, if you would have come earlier, uh, our brother, your friend, would not have died. She was at her knees for a burden. Her heart was breaking. Her brother had died. The Bible says Mary hit her knees and she cried out, Lord, can't you do something? But here in John chapter 12, she is on her knees at the feet of Jesus for another reason. She's giving her best. It wasn't for a, a time of, of burden. It wasn't for a time of blessing. But now she is simply giving her best to Jesus. She was thinking, what can I do for this man who, who has given everything to me? Who, who's taken me out of the lifestyle that I was in? The, the road and the path that I was walking down. This man changed my life. What can I do for him? Now... Mary could have easily looked at Martha and said, well, she's the, she's the attractive one. She's the one who, who works with her hands. She, she can do all of these things. Look at all the things that Martha can do. She, she could have looked at her brother Lazarus and said, he's got an awesome testimony. He was dead and now he's alive. In fact, every time somebody sees him now, they say, hey, that's Lazarus who was dead, but yet he's alive now. Mary could look at her sister and she could look at her brother and say, look what Jesus has done for them. The only thing he's done for me is he's pulled me out of prostitution. He's taken me out of that lifestyle. And, and that's not a very glamorous thing. She could have looked at those circumstances. She could have looked at those testimonies. And she could have said, what, what can I do? What can I give? So she took, Mark tells us, an alabaster box. She opens it, she pours the expensive perfume on the head and the feet of Jesus in a posture of being a servant. That's why Jesus spoke so sharply to Judas. He said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Now she could have taken her money and she could have sold that ointment, she could have given it all to the poor. She could have fed a, a family of, of four for a whole year and then had money left over. But after that year is up, that family would have been hungry again. 
Jesus was not saying, don't help the poor. We see Jesus time and time again telling us, give a cup of cold water in his name. Give, give food to the hungry. Give, give clothing to the cold. We, we see that this is the point of what Jesus is telling, but, but ultimately what he's seeing here is not, he's not saying reject the poor, forget the poor, don't help the poor, but what he's saying is what is most important, what is most important is to worship me. That's what's important, to exalt Jesus, to exalt Jesus that others may know him, to serve him. There's something here in this passage I want you to see. Judas, what was his job? His job was the money changer. He was the one who carried the money. John tells us something that is very sad that speaks of the character of Judas. Judas, the money carrier, he, he scolded Mary for giving and, and sacrificing and serving the way that she did. But then John tells us he didn't really care about the poor. He was only in it for what he could get out of it because, you see, his hand was in the bag. He was robbing God. <laughs> There's a whole other sermon in that statement as well. And you know what breaks my heart? Church, can I tell you what breaks my heart? is that we roughly have 17% of the church who gets it, and 83% of the church is robbing God. You say, well, how do I rob God? Well, when you don't bring the tithe, when you don't bring what rightfully belongs to him, Malachi tells us that you rob God. We talked about this last week. I don't want to get back into it. You, you can go online. That's probably going to be the least viewed sermon of the website, is the, the sermon on tithing. But you know, God doesn't need our money. You, you hear me say all the time that it's not that you give until it hurts, but you give until it helps. And God has got the ministries, God has got this church, God, God has it all under control. God doesn't need our money. God is a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he also owns the hills those cattle stand on. Let me tell you what he's done in the life of this church. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, I asked the church to pray because the Sunday offering was low. We're still doing good financially. Everything is, is shaping up very well. We're having to cut. We're having to cut. We're having to cut. We're having to cut. But as my friend who is now with the Lord, Zig Ziglar, used to say, if your income exceeds your outgo, then your upkeep will be your downfall. I asked the church to pray. In fact, I had a church member who came up to me and said, Pastor, we need to pray for the finances of this church. It was a, a low offering that Sunday. I said, you know, we'll, we'll pray, but here's the deal. Understand this, I'm not concerned about the money that comes in. I'm not concerned about that. God's got it under control. That was Wednesday night. Thursday morning, I received a phone call that said, Pastor, we have collected from an individual who has no ties that we can tell from this church. Has, has no ties at all with the Loma Church. Never been a member here, never, never served here, has never done anything. He, he was an older man. He died and he left a portion of his estate to a Loma Church to the tune of six figures. We prayed on Wednesday night that God would do something amazing, that God would show himself to this church to show that he's got this under control. 
You see, God doesn't need our money. God demands our heart, though. And as we said last week, it's with our money, it's with our time, it's with our talent, it's with everything that we are. If we confess that and we bring it to Him, we confess it, we lay it down at His feet, we offer it to Him as a sacrifice, no matter what it is. That's what God wants. That's what God desires. A tithe for you may look like $5 a week. A tithe for you may look like $5,000 a week. I don't know. A tithe of your time a time of your talents. There are things that you can do that I can't do. You are a part of the body. You're a part of the body of Jesus Christ, and God has gifted you in ways that He's not gifted me. He's gifted me in ways He's not gifted you. And we're all a part of this body, and we are to, to sacrifice together. And what breaks my heart is that I see a handful of people sacrificing, but I see so many not giving anything. I'm not just talking about money here. But we have so many not doing anything. It's this idea that somebody else can do it. I want you to look in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You say, I I don't understand this this idea of stewardship of, of service. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10. Peter tells us as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as what? Good stewards of God's very grace. You see, God has given to us special gifts. God has given you talents and, and resources. And again, th- this, this notion of stewardship goes so much further and past money and, and finances. It goes way past that. It goes into our time. It goes into these talents. A stewardship of, of service. But so many Christians, they want somebody else to do it. I, I found this, this old hymn, maybe you've heard it before, or not a hymn, but a poem. It goes something like this. There's a clever young fellow named somebody else. There's nothing this fellow can't do. He's busy from morning to way late at night just substituting for you. When asked to do this or asked to do that, so often you're set to reply, get somebody else, Mr. Chairman. He'll do it much better than I. There's so much to do in our parish. We can see that this wasn't a Baptist who wrote this. There's so much to do in our parish, so much and the workers are few. Somebody else gets wearied and worn just substituting for you. So next time you're asked to do something worthwhile, come up with this honest reply. If somebody else can give time and support, it's obviously true. So can I. The church is not simply a place where we come and worship and 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 receive teaching. As as James said, we don't just come and we're not just hearers of the word, but we must also be what? Doers of the word. Notice Mary's service was an expression of her worship to God. That's important. Mary's service was an expression of of her worship to God. 
as she was worshiping God. Yes, when she was on her knees, wiping her hair, that was a, 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 a point of worship. But it was also a point, a point of servanthood. And that's exactly what it means to be a faithful steward. That's what it means. When we talk about being a steward, don't miss this. This is so vital. That's what it means. When, when our service becomes an expression of our worship, when our giving becomes an expression of our worship, when everything that we do becomes an expression of worship. For a church to be healthy, our members must be growing in good works, but also a ministry of service. So many people are concerned about the size of churches these days. Frankly, I don't think that God cares about the size of the church. He blesses large churches. He blesses small churches. He's not interested in the size. I believe that he's interested in the service of the church, in the soul winning of the church, in the strength of the church. I don't believe that you can determine the, 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 the greatness of a church by how many members that church has. But rather... You judge how successful a church is, how great a church is, by how many members become ministers, how many members become missionaries. And I'm not talking about full-time ministers and full-time missionaries. I'm talking about every member stepping into a work and, and taking their part of the wall, as Nehemiah would put it. Remember Nehemiah? The man who was commissioned by God to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? When you read Nehemiah 3, you, you see, a, a, in Nehemiah 3, 4, and 5, you see a list of names. And, and I don't even know how to pronounce half of those names, but it's not important the pronunciation of those names. What's important is that we see these men and women who were given a portion of the wall. They were said, this is your portion of the wall. You go and rebuild it. You go and do. You go and serve. You give of your time and your talents to, to do this. And, and when we read it, we see that some of them were priests. Some of them were, were craftsmen. Some of them were, were workers of copper. Some of them were lawyers. Some of them were doctors. And, and all of these men from all different walks of life pitched in for one purpose, to rebuild the wall. The emphasis is not on the church being a civic organization or, or even a religious country club, but the church being an army of God, being on fire for the Lord. And rather than coming into a church and saying, okay, you got 60 minutes to work on me, bless me, feed me, make sure you step on my feet a little bit, preacher, but make sure you comfort me a little bit too. Don't make me feel too bad when I walk out. Make me laugh. Make me cry, but a good cry. Visit me. Can you see how, with that mindset, how the church ceases being a church and becomes, becomes a self-servicing organization? The mindset that it's all about me. What can I get out? What can I get out? What can I get out? The mark of a strong church is when the members begin to say, not what I can get out, but what can I put in? Not what am I going to get out of this. There's nothing wrong with getting something out of the service. You, I pray and hope that you get something out of the sermon, that you get something out of the worship. But if your goal in coming to church is, is what can I get out, then you're missing the point of what it means for stewardship. It's not what I can get out, but what can I invest? What can I put back into the life of this church? That's the attitude of a church, a real church. I pray that that's the type of church that we are having this mindset of Mary and worshiping and sacrificing and serving, not caring what others thought. She let her hair down. 
That's a big no-no in that culture. Women always kept their hair up. She pulled her hair down and she didn't care what others thought. Most churches in the world, you've heard of the 80-20 principle, haven't you? 80% of the people do 20% of the work. You, you've, you've heard this. 80% of the people give 20, or 20 percent, uh, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people give 80% of the money, give 80% of their time. I read a, a startling statistic this week that said that that number has actually changed now. It's no longer 20% doing 80% of the work. It's now 15% doing 85% of the work. We live in a culture where more and more people are pulling out of, of church. They're, 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 they're making the church, they're turning the church into a, a football game, into a basketball game, and they're sitting in the stands and observing. The church is not a spectator sport. We don't come to church just to watch the show. We, we, we gather together. This, I, I call what we're doing here the huddle. I'm a big football fan. I love football, and so I use football analogies all the time. You don't go to a football game to watch the guys in a huddle, do you? Now, maybe you do, but if you do that, you're missing the point of the game. What happens in that huddle? Well, being a football player, you, and if you've ever played football, you know there's a lot of stuff that goes on in that huddle. Lots of things happen. A lot of people are, there, there's a lot of stuff, but the most important thing that happens in that huddle, you know what it is? The play gets called. The play gets called. And then once the play is called, they break that huddle, they get on the line of scrimmage, they, they call the play, and, and I can tell you, I can tell you, every team, I'm not a prophet where I can see in the future, but I can tell you, every single NFL team that's going to win this afternoon, I can give you every single team that's going to win. Do you want to know who they are? You ready? Got your pen out? It's every team. It's every team that executes their plays with perfection, who executes well, who gets in the huddle, they call the play, they have a single vision, they go out, they execute that play. The team that executes the best will always win the game. Now let's bring this into the idea of the church. What we're doing here is the huddle. Now, we're, it's not a bunch of sweaty, fat guys in, in, with their arms around each other here. We don't stink. We, we've taken showers. I hope you've taken a shower. I took my shower this morning. But we've gathered together in this huddle. We, we've come together in this huddle. We're, we're calling the play right now. You say, well, what's the play? The, the, the message, the, the worship, the, the vision, centering ourselves on Jesus, doing whatever it takes for people to experience life change. That's the play. And how successful we're going to be is not what happens here, but what happens out there. And how successful we are is how effective we are in executing the play. It's not about how big we get or how small we get. How many people we, we baptize. Yes, those things are important. But what God is looking for is a church who, who gets it. A church that is saying, whatever it takes. That's why I ask you this morning, as you look at your own life, are you willing to leave your comfort zone? We all have comfort zones that make us comfortable. I know some of us right now are a little uncomfortable in talking about some of the things we've been talking about. 
I'm not asking for every member to, to plug into uh, some ministry of the church. Yes, we need people to serve. We need more people to serve. But I'm talking about serving the church at large, serving Christ in our community. And whatever it is that you do, whether you're a teacher, an attorney, a contractor, a, a student, a homemaker, whatever you do, that's a ministry for Christ. Along with what we do in the program, the strategy of the church and reaching the world for Christ, you have a part of that. I had lunch this past week with a new member of Aloma. He told me that I asked him how he and his wife, they, they're uh, older in age, and uh, which to me, I'm 34, so older to me is 40 and older, so. Hey, all right. <laughs> I asked him, I said, how did you find Aloma? And he told me, he said, well, my, my daughter invited me. My adult daughter invited me. I said, oh, really? I, I didn't know that your daughter was a member of our church. And he said, well, she's not. Her daughter doesn't attend our church at all. But their daughter works at a place where a Aloma church member works as well. And so they begin to talk, and, and the member is telling this couple's daughter about Aloma Church. And the daughter then goes and tells her mom and dad about Aloma Church, and they come, and, and they, they connect with the church here. That's pretty cool. It's the concept of every member a minister. The past three weeks, we've, we've seen God save souls in our services. And I, I, tell, I say this half-jokingly, but, but very serious, that, that when the preacher preaches on tithing and people get saved, you know that's a movement of God. We just baptized one. For the past three weeks, we've seen somebody give their, their life to the Lord. Can I tell you that every single one of those that have come, they weren't just driving down 436 and saw a church and said, oh, I think I'll go into that church. You know why they came? Because they were invited. They were invited. I don't have to tell you that culture is changing. People in today's culture, they don't just come to church. We live in a post-Christian land. We're now working on the second generation that, that was not raised in church. The second generation, think about this. We are now two generations removed from, from individuals being raised in the church and re, being raised in a Christian culture. Just because we have a building doesn't mean people are going to come. But listen, this culture, these generations, they're very interested in hearing truth. These two generations that have been raised apart from Christ, apart from God, apart from the church, they're very interested in truth because all they've ever seen and all they've ever heard were lies, falsities, broken relationships. And there is a world, there are young people and older people out there outside this church and they're, they're lost as all get out. They don't know Christ. A large percentage of them have never even heard the name of Jesus mentioned. And all they're looking for is someone to tell them the truth. To tell them the truth. I implore you to serve God. Not just find a ministry, yes, we could use more people holding babies. 
We could use people to teach our students. We could use people to operate those cameras. We could use individuals to to serve in many ways. Just walk up to some of these men who are ushers and say, hey, do you think the church could use more ushers? Walk up to some of the men and women outside who, who... who smile and, and wave and, and, and open car doors, ask them, hey, do you think the church could use more people like you? You say, well, what are some ways, and I'll do the, we'll share this in closing, what are some ways, what are some behaviors, what are some things that we can do to help us to understand this idea of stewardship of service the best? Bottom shelf, what can we do? Number one, number one, discover your spiritual gift. Discover your spiritual gift. If you don't know what your gift is, call the church. There's a survey, a free survey. In fact, uh, what we're going to do um, is we will put this on our website. We'll provide a link on our website and also on our Facebook page. And if you go, uh, it'll take Chris a little bit longer. He's looking at me. He's, he's just a little scared there. But if, if we can put this on our Facebook page or, or, or on our website, and it'll be a link, and it'll, it's a Lifeway link, and it'll take you... 15 minutes to take this little survey online. You can take the survey, and it'll help you to discover your spiritual gift. You say, what are spiritual gifts? Well, spiritual gifts are broken up in basically two main categories, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. The speaking gifts, that, that's, that's prophesying, preaching, teaching, exhortation, wisdom, knowledge. These are speaking gifts. But the second category is one that's most popular. Everybody has uh, a, a, a serving gift as well. Every one of us have one of these gifts. They're support of the church. It's uh, administration, leadership, giving, mercy, and so on. The fact is that you may be serving God and serving Christ and serving this church and have no idea what your spiritual gift is, but you just know that this, that this is my niche, that this is where God's created me to do. And I may not know and define what my, my, my spiritual gift is, but I know that this is where I, where I find myself satisfied. This, this is where I find myself saying, okay, I, I'm pouring myself in, I'm, I'm making an investment. And that's a good place to be, but I would encourage you even to discover your spiritual gift. To discover your spiritual gift. Number two, serve God faithfully with that gift. Discover what your gift is, and then serve Him. Serve Him. If there's not a ministry in this church that that you can use your spiritual gift in, then start one. We had, in the interim, we we didn't have an organized uh, group to go out and to witness and to evangelize and to share the gospel. So what a handful of people did in this church, they said, well, you know what? God has laid it on my heart to be an evangelist, to share my faith. And so they started uh, several years ago, and they just started going out and knocking on doors. Their goal is to knock on every single door in the city of Castleberry. They just started. They just did it. You see, that's building a Loma, yes, but it's building the church at large, and that's what our mindset must be. Using spiritual gifts, singing in the choir, playing an instrument, sharing your faith, preschool, teaching students. Number three, experience the joy of giving. When you give of your time and your talent and your treasure, it shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't feel like a burden, but it should feel like a pleasure. God, God loves a cheerful giver. God, God wants a cheerful giver. I learned a long time ago that if stuff gets my mind off of God, then God removes that stuff. 
If, if my stuff, if my time, if my dissertation, or if my money, or, or if my stuff gets my mind off of God, then God has a way of removing my stuff so that I don't have an excuse but to have my mind on Him. And it hurts when God removes stuff, doesn't it? It hurts when, when band-aids are just ripped off, doesn't it? Especially when you got hair under it, you know, and when you rip that band-aid off, it pulls some of the hair. But that's how God works. That's how God works in my life, and I know that's how God works in your life. When we become preoccupied with something that gets our mind off of him, he will put things in our way that will cause whatever it is that we're focusing on not to be our focus anymore. Sometimes he puts storms in our life, and those storms then become our focus. God is, not, God is not a puppet master where he says, okay, you do what I say, but he allows things to come into our life for our focus to get back on to him. So I learned, that, I learned this, that, that, that we, we have everything that we've been given with an open palm. Never close your fist. Never say, this is mine. This is mine. This belongs to me. This, I possess this. God, you can't have this portion. You can't have this part. All of this, this is mine. Uh, my business or my time or my family or my children. This, this is mine. No, that's the wrong attitude. Have it with an open hand. Say, God, you've blessed me with these children. God, you've blessed me with this spouse. God, you've blessed me with this, this job. God, you've blessed me with this. And so, Father, I hold it with an open hand, and, and you move, and you do whatever you would do. If you need to pick it up and move it over here, if I need to lose my job for your sake, and that's what you, you see fit, Father, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. When we begin to approach life with open palms like this, it allows us to see God move in very awesome ways. Experience the joy of giving. The proverb says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Don't let those just be words, but make them a practice. And number four, see giving as an act of worship. See giving, see service as an act of worship. Make sure your motivation is not of self-concern, but love for God. The most important truth in your life is that God has saved you. And the way we worship Him, the way we serve Him, is to give back to His work.